The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Hello, everyone. I'm Diane Ray. Thanks for checking in with me today. I'm really glad you could join the show. So we're on, what, day 500 of our COVID-19 nightmare <laughs> lockdown here. Um, I'm doing live radio here from the spacious Diane Ray Studios in San Diego, California on unityonlineradio.org. And of course, the show is available later via podcast on all your favorite podcast outlets, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, all of those things. So however you happen to be listening to me right now, whether it is podcast or live, welcome, because today I'm very excited about my guest. We're going to be talking about really good wine and love. So what's not to like about that? It's going to be a really fun hour. So I'm excited for my guest. So just to give you a a little history, you know, back in the early 1970s, wine from California wasn't really taken as seriously as its French and Italian cousins. And in 1972, Justin Meyer, a former monk of the Christian Brothers who had learned traditional winemaking, partnered with an entrepreneur named Ray Duncan to found the iconic Silver Oak Cellars, specializing in Cabernet Sauvignon. Now, when I mentioned Silver Oak to various friends, you know, their eyes just lit up and they were like, what? Silver Oak? So when I say that this is an iconic wine, I am serious. So the first vintage of this wine was released in 1972 with 1,000 cases, and it has grown to be one of the most iconic and recognizable wine labels in the world. Bonnie Meyer met her future husband as a college student in 1967 and was at his side every step of the way in creating one of Napa Valley's most coveted wines. And in her book, which I just finished last night, perfectly paired the love affair behind Silver Oak Cellars, she describes those early days in Napa Valley, growing a successful business and navigating life after Justin's sudden death in 2002, not long after they had sold their share of the business. So we're going to take a trip, maybe a little sideways trip uh, through Napa Valley today uh, via my guest, Bonnie Meyer. So welcome to the show, Bonnie. I'm really happy to have you on today. Thank you very much, Diane, and I'm very happy to be here with you. Well, this will be a fun show and just a a fun conversation uh, that we're going to be going over your story here from the book, Perfectly Paired. And it just, (laughs) I'm kind of laughing to myself because right before we went live today, uh, Bonnie said she was going to be pouring a glass of some Bonnie's Vineyard wine. And I'm like, oh, I wish I could share in that with you right now. <laughs> it That distracted <laughs> me. So now I'm thinking, oh, great wine. So Bonnie's enjoying a, a, gla- a glass of wine, um, and I'm virtually enjoying that with her um, in my setting here in San Diego. So, you know, I just finished the book, like I said last night, perfectly paired. I got an advanced copy here. And this book is a great read for people who are interested in the wine world and who also love a great love story. So we're going to go over all of that today on the show. So Bonnie, I was just hoping 
first that you could take us back a little bit to California wine country in the early 1970s and just paint a picture a little bit of what that was like. Actually, I'll start a little bit before that. I was invited uh, first time to the Napa Valley uh, by uh, Brother Justin, <laughs> the monk who became my husband. Uh, probably was around 19, I think, 69. And I was invited to a vintner's gathering, barbecue. And I, he said, bring your guitar. So I did. And uh, he picked me up and we drove to the Napa Valley where I came upon a scene in a grove of trees where these guys were, were uh, barbecuing at the barbecue they were laughing and talking, drink, drinking each other's wines, and having a wonderful time together. Now, that doesn't sound all that unusual today, but what was I was I was incredulous as I saw these guys because my dad had worked for the Ford Motor Company his whole life, and he never brought anyone from work home with him, and the the big enemy was General Motors, Chevrolet, and you would never, ever be fraternized with someone from the enemy, from the other, from the other business. And the fact that these dinners were together and having a good time and laughing and talking and celebrating together was so unusual to me. And it actually was a foreshadowing of what what I came to understand is the amazingly collaborative atmosphere that existed in the Napa Valley in the 70s and 80s. And the undercurrent, the unspoken agreement was if we all help each other make our wine, if we all help each other with our uh, vineyards, uh, with analysis, with sharing equipment, if I lend you my tractor and you lend me your your hand bottler, whatever it was, if we all help each other, we can make Napa Valley great. We can, we can put Napa Valley on the map, which it wasn't. In the early, in the 60s, uh, Napa Valley was primarily producing jug wine and under names that weren't even, uh, were kind of co-opted from the French, like uh, Burgundy and Chablis. That's what we we were doing here in the in the 1960s, and so um, yeah, so it was it was wonderful. There was a lot of camaraderie. There was a very down home uh, attitude uh, amongst all these guys who uh, were star were just really down and dirty with making making good wine, and and the emergence of the idea that that they wanted to make uh, vintage uh, varietals and as opposed to uh, jug wines. And what you describe in the book was uh, back in the early 70s, um, you know, California wines were, like you said, just like jug wines. And then once, um, and your husband being at the forefront, just admire, once people came together and with their collaboration were producing some incredible wine. There was a, a big tasting in Paris, France, where California wines actually beat these 
long-standing, you know, French uh, wine labels, and that just kind of blew everything up, right? So at that at that point, things really changed. It was it was huge, and actually, we we knew in California that we were making great wines, but in particular in in this country. Europeans, um, sorry, Europeans, East Coast people tended to buy wine only from Europe and didn't trust that a California wines were actually sophisticated enough or good enough. And it was after that Paris tasting that that we gained a lot of uh, credibility and respect. And you there at the forefront, you and your husband, Justin, and he founded Silver Oak Cellars with Ray Duncan. Uh, specializing in Cabernet Sauvignon. And when you first met Justin, I want to get a little bit into your love story because I think it's just so interesting and just such a, a huge part of the book. Justin was a professed Christian brother, which is an order of monks uh, with roots dating back to the 1700s. I, I was kind of researching a little bit what and who Christian brothers actually were. And you had also considered a life as a nun with the Sisters of the Holy Cross when you were younger. I thought that was really interesting because when I was younger, I thought that the nuns were magical. And I thought, oh, wouldn't that be great to be a nun? <laughs> so we actually have that in common. That I, I had that, actually had that idea. And then um, the two of you came together and it was it was kind of an interesting pairing in the beginning because he was you know, really committed to that idea of, of being a Christian brother. And I just wanted you to describe like kind of the early days of the relationship, you know, navigating that and then, you know, eventually coming together um, in your relationship because, you, you know, a Christian brother, I mean, you couldn't really have a relationship, right? <laughs> right. Well, we, a relationship means a lot of things, but we never considered yes. that we would ha have a um you know, a couple relationship. Uh, so I first met Justin, I had only been at Davis, UC Davis for uh, about a month. And I was in, 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 invited to, um, uh, to a professor's house for dinner to celebrate Brother Justin's birthday. And I had not met him, but I was invited by a friend. I brought my guitar um, at his suggestion. And I pulled it out to lead the family uh, in happy birthday. And Justin's eyes, Brother Justin's eyes, just lit up. And he disappeared into the back of the house. He was living there at Professor Omo's house and came back with his homemade banjo. And we sat right there at the dining room table and started playing music. And then we retired to the family room and we played music for maybe two, three hours that night and had the most marvelous time. So we both knew by the end of that evening that we had found a friend in music. He later on uh, started coming to church with me uh, in the evenings, on Sunday evenings, and we played music together in church. And we never intended to fall in love, of course, uh, but some few months after that, realized one one night after a dinner at the at the almost uh we were by the creek and he kissed me and i and i was so surprised but then 
really in those kind of where you know where time slows down a little bit and your your brain kind of like goes back in time to wait a second you know wait a second how do I really feel about this this man and I realized in that moment that I was in love with him so then we were there kind of looking at each other and we go what do we do with this and and the answer was well I don't think we do anything with this except enjoy the time together he's at the end of the term he was finished with his master's and we thought that would be the end of it Uh, but as it turns out we couldn't quite manage to stay away from each other and uh, five years went by and it was um, elation when I would anticipate or seeing him and then and then we would be apart again and it would be really hard and sometimes we would decide not to see each other again because it was too hard uh, eventually at the end of my uh, time there at Davis uh, I uh, we talked and I, I said we can't okay this is the is this is the end I I'm not going to be here at at uh, the campus anymore I'm going to be living somewhere else this is the end and about a week or two later he showed up at the Omos house and when I happened to be there and with trembling hands and um, misty eyes he he told me that uh, he had decided to leave the brothers and asked me to marry him and right away I said yes so and that's how the romance began well it's such a, a sweet relationship and and so beautiful the way you describe it in the book and just overcoming that initial hurdle in the beginning because that that's quite the obstacle to to jump over, you know, and like you said, it took five years, you know, from meeting until you were married to, you know, kind of reconcile uh, his decision to leave, you know, leave the order and then go forward with the relationship. And then it was just such a strong and and enduring relationship. And you were married for what, 30 years, a a long time, 30 years. Yeah. 30, 30 years until his, um, sudden death, but that now I'm getting ahead of myself. I wanted just to say that I do believe that it's that five-year foundational friendship that that really solidified our our relationship. And uh, there was never, I was, we were never flirting with each other. We were never trying to create romance like couples uh, frequently do. And uh, I, I, I believe that trying not to be in love with each other actually was really very helpful. Um, one of the reasons I decided to write the book is I, my intention, uh, to, so many people had said, you had an extraordinary relationship. Most people don't get to experience that. And what I really hope that through my stories, uh, people reading those stories, they realize that they can find themselves in there and that it's an invitation for them, too, to have an extraordinary relationship, as I described the anatomy of what that's like. Um, so that's that's my hope. Well, it really is uh, an, kind of an amazing blueprint for an incredible relationship in, in both work and life. And yeah, I think it's interesting, like you describe in the book, I mean, you really gave each other 
you know, chances to, to know each other fully, you know, and some people will rush into things so quickly or not really become friends first. And, and you were friends mm -hmm. first, right? You had such a strong yeah. basis in that, you know, before it became a love relationship. And I think a lot of yeah. people don't give things that time anymore. So there, there's a mm -hmm. real lesson there. And I wanted to ask you too about when, you know, Justin learned winemaking from the Christian Brothers organization who made sacramental wines. Um, and he learned specifically from a man named Brother Timothy, who was their wine master for 50 years. And, and his dream with Silver Oak was to make a world-class wine, specifically a Cabernet Sauvignon. And people might not understand, but why was that such a radical idea at the time that Justin had that? First of all, he came to that decision because Christian Brothers at that time, and by the way, Justin was being trained, or Brother Justin was being trained uh, and groomed to be the future president of of Christian Brothers. So they they gave him, he had an amazing education with Brother Timothy and other people in that organization. Um and uh, but Christian Brothers was making forty different wines, and that was frustrating to him. And it was mostly driven by the marketing arm of the company. And he there was a lot about it that he didn't like. And so he he actually took a radical departure and just said, you know, I don't want to make forty wines. I really just want to make one. So actually, the same week we were married. We started Silver Oak with dedicated to just making Cabernet Sauvignon, and that choosing that variety had a lot to do with Justin's belief that that Cabernet Sauvignon is the wine uh, most suited for Napa Valley and Alexander Valley in the Sonoma County, and that that's what this area can can really excel at, and that's what we ought to be growing. And making, and uh, so it was a, a, a radical departure on in his thinking. But also at the time, pretty much all the other wineries were making uh, twelve or fifteen different wines, and they thought we were crazy uh, to just make one. Uh, Justin used to say, "You can tell who the pioneers are. But you can tell them by the arrows in them." And <laughs> we knew that right. we were taking <laughs> taking a leap of faith. Uh, and uh, to do something so different, uh, but it really turned out well, and it was a it was a joy and a lot of fun to create Silver Oak. Oh yeah, just reading about it and the parties that you had, and the collaboration and the love of all the people that contributed in the Silver Oak family and all the people in the wine world, you know, it just, it, it sounded magical. I mean, <laughs> as I was reading it, I really wished I could have been there, especially at some of your opening day parties. Those, uh, those sounded amazing. So, I mean, with the early days though, and, and, you know, that being such a, a radical idea to just have one varietal and then do the Cabernet Sauvignon, how were things received in the beginning when you released the first few vintages? What did, what did people think? You know, our first vintage was pretty small, about a thousand cases, and we managed to uh, sell them. And that was 72. 73 made a little bit more wine. 74, uh, we happened to be reviewed and win some uh, accolades in Los Angeles. 
there was a wine reviewer named uh, Bobby Balzer and or Robert Balzer and a uh, very prominent wine wine writer and critic at the time. And uh, he named our wine uh, the best of that year. And that really put us on the map. I think after that, no one really questioned if we knew what we were doing. And in addition to that, I have to say there was some accidental marketing uh, there. Uh, I didn't really think of it. I ended up being really in charge of marketing and sales for Silver Oak. And I didn't really think of it strategically when we decided to just make Cabernet, but people assumed that we knew what we were doing. If you're just making one wine, I guess it must be good. Uh, So that was, uh, you know, in business, sometimes you you make plans and things fall through, and other times you don't make plans and good things happen. Right. That's so true. Or sometimes you just forge forge ahead and, um, you know, like I've said, fake it till you make it. <laughs> it, a lot of times for myself in my own career, you know, I've just done that and just, well, people assume you know what you're doing and then you're just gonna go, <laughs> go ahead and do it, you know, and for you, yeah. it, it worked out really well. And then, you know, of course you, you learn and, and grow as time goes on. Um, but yeah, that's interesting where, you know, at first people must've thought, what is this? And then, uh, you know, then it just kind of exploded from there. So in the book, is- you know, speaking um, of the business, you know, in the in the book, you talk about your relationship, you know, with Justin, which was incredibly close in life and, and in business. And, and you said you were in charge of marketing for so many years in sales and you worked side by side. So I wanted to ask you about, you know, creating a successful working relationship with your partner. And, and what was that like? Because I don't think you didn't you didn't start out to be in the wine business, right? It just did it kind of naturally happen. It it did. Actually, it, it started about a year or so after we were married and I was living in the Napa Valley and Justin was a little older than, than I was and he had a, more of a traditional idea that he was going to take care of me. And after, after a little while, uh, after I'd read a number of books from the library, I was kind of bored. And I uh, said to Justin one night, I think I'm going to look for uh, apply for a for a job at the bank. And he looked at me with this incredulous look and he said, "Why would you want to do that?" And I said, "Well, I I really like to get out and and do something creative and interesting." And he says, "Well, if you want to work, then come help me." And so that's it, that's how it started. It also solved one problem and uh that every time he would come home at the end of the day, we would play 20 questions, which means that I would ask him all these questions of what, what he had done that day. Uh, and and uh, when we started working side by side, that didn't happen. I didn't have to grill him at the end of the day to find out what he had been doing because uh, I was right there with him. Uh, over the time, we came to a couple of conclusions. After a couple of years, we we looked at each other and we said, you know, we're spending most of our time, most of our day at work. I think that we ought to make it as fun as possible. So that's uh, that's the time when we very purposefully decided that that fun was going to be a, a primary principle or value for our business. The fact that he had been a 
Christian brother and had deep values and I had shared those same values, that actually really infused our business. And our business was truly a values-based business, not just a business that had something up on the wall. I think those values and our love for each other actually infused the wine with a, a kind of, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it, but we were, we were more, way more successful when, than we thought we'd ever be. And I think people could feel that. But getting back to how, how it was, what it was like to work with each other, for the most part, it was wonderful because we had very complementary skills and interests. There was, there was a moment, there's a, there's a story in the book that says, I quit. And there right. were two, two times when, when I just had enough. He, he, uh, he had a pretty strong personality. He was a strong, strong guy. And I just said, oh, no, 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 I don't want to do this anymore. And, but after about a week or so in both cases, uh, I just would show back up at the winery and he'd look up at me and he said, I thought you quit. And I go, yeah, but I'm back. And that was the long and the short of it. We, <laughs> we, we uh, almost never argued and, as a couple. Um, we, we both, I think, were either blessed by personality or by, by um, spiritual orientation to not necessarily have, a, have a, a big ego. And we kind of let go of things and, and, uh, and you know, infused, diffused uh, any tension with humor uh, very quickly. And so working together with him was wonderful. Um, when he died, it was really, really hard. Uh, made it's one of those things that was really hard because he had been my my lover, my uh, co-parent, um, my partner in business, uh, my best friend. He had had so many of those roles um, that uh, I felt pretty lost without him for a while. Right. Um, I know things just totally changed, and we're going to talk a little about that a bit about that part of the book as well in the next segment. We're going to take a short break in uh, just a few seconds here because this is live radio. <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm still doing it, you know, carrying the torch. Uh, so we'll break <laughs> for a few minutes, and then we'll come back and chat more with Bonnie Meyer about her book, Perfectly Paired, The Love Affair Behind Silver Oak Cellars. So thanks for listening. We'll be right back in just a minute. Stay close. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, The Diane Ray Show. Welcome back, and thanks for joining me through the break here. I'm Diane Ray, talking with Bonnie Meyer, who, along with her husband, Justin Meyer, were the founders of Silver Oak Cellar, specializing in Cabernet Sauvignon. And she joins me from the Napa Valley, and she's written a really beautiful book. It's called Perfectly Paired. 
the love affair behind Silver Oak Cellar, and she talks about their life and love and incredible journey. And before the break, um, I wish I was enjoying some Bonnie's Vineyard that she is enjoying, but alas, I, I am not. Um, but before the break, we were talking about uh, Bonnie and Justin's working relationship and the early days of, of starting out the winery and, and what that was like. And it just must have been so, you know, incredibly uh, busy and crazy, um, but in, in a good way. And you said that you just shared, you know, just such um, a, a closeness and a, um, how can I describe, I guess like a, a great, um, it was a great partnership because where you brought your strengths and then, you know, he had his strengths. Um, but in, in the book, I thought it was funny where you also said that, you know, you wouldn't let him push you around because he was a big personality and a larger than life guy and sometimes can be intimidating to other people. But you were probably the one who could who could get away with things, right, or, or stand up to him in, in certain situations. <laughs> That's absolutely so. One of the things that I loved about our relationship is that he was a strong person and so was I. And when um, I really did my best to fall in love and date date other guys and fall in love with other guys when I was in college uh, because I didn't think there'd be any future with this this monk. And one of the things that I was always uncomfortable with is when I could um kind of push on them and they would give way and to me um justin always added uh offered a sense of security because i could push on him and he would hold steady and that was an important part of our our relationship i i wanted somebody who could really match me right and uh, amazing partnership yeah 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 it was. Now, I wanted to ask you, it too, was. about, you know, being a woman in what was at that time a predominantly male business. I mean, there couldn't have been that many, you know, women in the wine world. I know there's uh, some wineries and women, you know, a lot more women creating wine these days. And what what was that like at that time? The first time that I went out to sell wine. Uh, it was probably 1974 or so, and I was warned by other um, male men, wine salesmen, N women did not go into that arena. Women did not go into the back of restaurants. They did not go into the back office in a wine shop. Um, there were dangers there, and some of the dangers that they described were the girly pictures on the walls. And it, this was such a man's world that women did not do that. Uh, but I, I was determined. I was there, and actually, I wasn't the only one. It was Janet Trefathen and I were the first women to ever really go out onto the street and sell wine. And we actually got a lot of respect. Yes, I ended up in some of those offices and didn't didn't bother me really. Um, but I, I I got a lot of respect because I was a winery owner and not just somebody. And so the shop owners and the restaurateurs really wanted to know stories of the Napa Valley and they wanted to hear my honest opinion. 
And so I had a particular advantage. Now, since then, yes, uh, women, there's even an organization called Women and Wine. There's another one, Women in Wine. And uh, it mostly was started by women who were, like me, on the street, began to sell wine. And the, uh, the distributors realized that women could be more articulate when they spoke about wine, fine wines, than some of their male car- counterparts. Uh, but, yeah, we started it, and it was, it was fun, um, fun and interesting. I'll bet. I bet you have some great stories, too, from that time, just being a, a trailblazer in a man's world and, you know, pushing, pushing forward and having such great success with Silver Oak. It, it's just amazing. And, and so going back a little bit to the relationship with Justin, which is really like the centerpiece of the book, you know, it just kind of it, it per- permeates everything, you know, life, business, all kind of revolving ar- around this relationship. And and you say throughout the book, you know, people would always say that they admired your, you and Justin's relationship and kind of envied it. I mean, do you think that you were, was it luck or, I mean, I know it's a lot of work in a relationship. I mean, do you think you both worked really hard at, at having a successful relationship or do you think there was some luck in that? Boy, that's an interesting question. I I think that it was luck or divine intervention or something that we met in the first place. I I never felt like we worked at our relationship. Honestly. Uh we we just naturally just were always attracted to each other. There was always um a real flame, you know, between us. Um always we were always flirting with each other. We we just yeah we loved being together, and so it was not work. And again, because we shared values, uh, that makes life a whole lot easier. So there was work. It was work that we had done on ourselves and continued to do. I used to tell Justin that I never would have married him if he hadn't been a monk for fifteen years. And uh, ahead of time, right? And I, I, uh, uh, I think that his that meditation and introspection really helped a lot. Uh, again, we didn't, we didn't. Neither one of us had big egos, and we didn't take ourselves too seriously. So we spent a whole lot more time laughing than anything else. That's so great. I always think that when I hear from people's people that are in in a relationship and like, well, you know, we're going to to therapy, you know, a bunch of times, or it's just, it just seems like it's so difficult and so hard. And then I read a story about your relationship with Justin. I'm like, that's really how things should be a lot easier, right? If it's really meant to be, it, it should kind of flow a lot easier. Not like there isn't work involved, you know, like you said, of course there is, you know, there's always, there are always going to be challenges and, and things that come up. But I think that if it's really meant to be, that it it should be easier than again yeah and again i think that the work is actually really work on yourself not necessarily work in the relationship and uh, to the degree that uh, you know brene brown says that we are wired for connection so the connection is natural as human beings 
uh, one of the struggles around the COVID where we're asked not to be so close and to connect so easily with each other. So we're wired for connection. Uh, but then she also says that uh, vulnerability is the key to the good life, to a life well lived. And so vulnerability is really work that you do on yourself, not work that you do, quote, in the relationship. Right, and when we're vulnerable, the other person. Yeah, right. Yeah. Accepting who they are. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Byron Katie, you know, says fighting, fighting or arguing against what is, is just like the definition of insanity. So um, you just accept who the, who the other is and love them for who they, who they are in an open hearted, vulnerable uh, way. And and add to that the magic of surrender, and you really have the essence of a of a wonderful, divine, extraordinary relationship, and in even a path to uh, uh, spirituality. A lot of spiritual traditions will say that surrender is an important part. Right. Yes, that's so true. And you write so beautifully in in the book about love, um, even your your own thoughts on love, just, just not even on the re- relationship level. In the book, you describe love as an all-powerful force that transcends not just love between two people, but love as a God force or divine intelligence. And you say one thing that you know for sure is that you're committed to loving and it's the essence of who you are. And And this seems to guide you, mm-hmm. right? Does this guide you every day, that idea? Oh, absolutely. Um, So love isn't just, you know, some kind of romantic love for one person or or a family, but it can be an underlying attitude or way of being, a vibration even, um, that when I live in a state of love, not only is my Every day is a better day. Not not to say every moment <laughs> I'm there, right? Uh, but but uh, for the most part, to the degree that I can live in that state of being, then I am blessed, and it blesses the people around me. Right. And it was just a great reminder to read that, especially with what we're we're going through right now. That really love will get us through this, right? This whole COVID nineteen. I think it's such a powerful yeah. force. And if we just remember that, you know, look, this too will pass. And and it is tough, you know, being apart from people because you're right, we're herd animals, you know, we like we like mm-hmm. to be social and we want to be around, you know, our loved ones and uh, mm-hmm. it is, it, it's tough at this particular time. So, so it's a, was a great uh, reminder to read your thoughts on that um, as I was reading through the, and also, in talking about love, you know, your book is a journey through grief as well. You know, dealing with um, the loss of Justin, you described the pain of the early days uh, right after his passing in, in 2002. And you, you talk about grief as a teacher. And what, what did you mean by that? What did grief teach you? Um, first of all, yes, it was it was. It was really hard, and I did resist it for a while. There were, there was a, at the beginning, uh, and for a while, I was afraid that if I really gave myself to grief, again, surrendered to it, that I would fall apart and I wouldn't be able to put myself back together. But over time, I realized that 
if I, when I really dove down into that deep well of grief, into the dark, mucky, murky bottom, that down there I found gifts and that grief holds gifts for us, but we have to dive down to find them. Yeah, that's a that's a tough concept, I guess, sometimes for people. Well, especially when you're right in the throes of something happening and, and you're dealing with grief immediately. But you, but like you said, grief can be a gift, and and it's something that comes, you know, over and over, right, in in your life. I mean, I guess it's hard yeah. for people to think of grief as a gift, you know, that that will come back and keep giving. Well, and grief grief is present. Um, one of one of the things that I did is I uh, found some help going to the Center for Attitudinal Healing created by Jerry Jampolsky, who famously wrote a book called Love is Letting Go of Fear. And love and fear, according to him, is our opposites. And fear is destructive and life um, life threatening. And life and love is life affirming. Um, and, but I've, I've found, um, yeah, I found that through that I could really relate to my grief. And I would say that the greatest gift of grief is it breaks your heart open. It, let me make that personal. It broke my heart open in a way that nothing else could. And, right. uh, but hard to, but yeah, hard to hear and hard to know until you until you do it. But we also find grief all kinds of places in our life. You know, someone uh, all of a sudden finds themselves divorced or they've lost their job. It's not just about someone dying. And so grief, or or, or they've just been diagnosed with a with a chronic life threatening disease. So grief is all around us, and the better that we can relate to it, let it change us, it can work its alchemical magic so that it can uh, transform us and transform our lives. Right, and make us stronger in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And after Justin passed, you had some really amazing experiences in connecting with him after death that you describe in the book. And what? what I'm just curious of your beliefs about life after death before Justin died, and did they shift after you had those experiences? Um, good question. I did, I did believe um, that we continue on after we die. Uh, but I was... Um, I would have been, my thoughts weren't particularly articulate about what that, what form that takes. Uh, the day after, uh, the day after Justin died, I was sitting with my daughter at the end of the day, I was sitting actually on the bed and she was laying there and a pebble flew across the room and landed at my feet. And Holly and I both looked down at the pebble. We looked at each other. We looked down at the pebble. We looked up at each other. And finally, she, in a soft voice, she says, hi, Daddy. Uh, we just both knew that 
this had to have come from him. It was his way of showing us that he was there. And wow. then the next day, something even funnier happened. Uh, but but um, that continued on for a long time. He kept playing with a hairdryer that was on the side of the the bathroom wall. It was one of those wall-mounted ones where you take off the nozzle and it it dries your hair. And he hated it. Um, that's what was really funny about it. He had a great sense of humor. And he hated that hairdryer because he would knock it with his elbow and it would go off. Well, the day after he died, that hairdryer broke. It just started going on, on and off of its own accord. And quickly, friends who were visiting um, for the memorial and to be with me for a while noticed that when I was really deep in, in grief and really suffering, the hairdryer would go off and it go wild. And then as I calmed down and became more grounded, the hairdryer would quiet and stop. Uh, and that went on for a for a year. Um, now, when I ask people, other people, well, so is, you know, when somebody dies, does anything happen? And they'll say, well, I don't know. What do you mean? And then I'll tell them a couple stories like this, and they go, oh, well, as a matter of fact, you know, this happened, but I didn't know what to think of it, and I and I haven't told anyone. And so one of the reasons I talk about these stories and and ways in which I learned to connect with Justin via meditation, lucid dreams, meditation. Um, I, uh, the reason I talk about this quite a bit in the, in the book is because I want this to become a normal part of our culture an accepted part of our culture because it's comforting uh, when we can continue our connection and relationship with uh, our beloved. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was really um, interested when I read those stories in the book, because I I believe that too, 100%. And also, I agree with you that we definitely need to change that conversation about, uh, you know, surrounding those things, um, just in general, especially I think in this country, we're afraid to talk about it. Um, and a, a, a friend of mine, an author that I, I had worked with in the past named David Kessler, wrote an amazing book called Visions, Trips, and Crowded Rooms about what people actually see right at that moment of passing. And he's a, a grief mm-hmm. therapist, and he had interviewed a lot of hospice workers and doctors and things like that who had had these conversations with people and family members of what their loved ones were describing of seeing you know, their their mother or their loved one greeting them at that moment that they passed but they didn't want to talk about it. You know, the doctors and hospice workers were afraid to have those kind of conversations about those experiences. So I really love that you shared that in the book and and you actually explored how to have those connections continue through through your life, you know, where you can learn meditation Uh techniques and ways to open yourself up a little bit to have those kind of experiences. So I mean, you would you say love never dies? That that connection, if you have that love connection, it will continue. Well, love, yes, love is eternal. Love does love never dies. But also, I would say beyond that, that our relationship, my relationship with Justin, continues to evolve. So I really feel like um, we're not the same. We weren't the same people five years after we were married as the day we got married or 15 years later and 20 years later, 30 years later. We used to 
say to each other on our anniversary, you know, I love you more than I did it last year, and I didn't think that was possible. Well, I can continue to say that about about him and about our relationship um, almost 20 years now after his passing. So that not only does it not to die. Grow. Yeah, yeah, it continues to go, grow and be rich and supportive. Wow. Yeah, it yeah. continues to grow and evolve. That's so beautiful. And do you feel that you can, um, that he guides you or you have communication, you know, moving forward? Like if you had a big decision to make about something that you can, you can feel that support. Definitely. Sometimes I will intentionally getting, get into a quiet state and ask a question. Other times I'll maybe go to sleep with a a question or a problem in mind. And then I wake up first thing in the morning and I'll have the answer. And I don't always know exactly that it just came from him, um, but it came from somewhere and it wasn't mine. Right. You know, we always know when it's not our thought that it that came from somewhere else. Or just having incredible dreams. I've had some amazing dreams um, after my mother passed of just of us having conversations and sometimes they would be silly, you know, or not even really, (laughs) you know, like she was telling me anything. I remember one conversation in particular where I really heard her voice and we were somewhere, I think we're having a glass of wine in the dream. And I said, what kind of cheese do you like mom? And she goes, Oh, I like this kind." Like it was just so ridiculous, but it was so clear. And I heard her voice and it was just like, she was right there. It was so, so vivid, like Ah. a lucid dream, like you described. Um, Isn't it so, so great? Possible. It is. Yeah. yeah. It, it was yeah. nice to read your experience. Like I, I believe that those things are possible, and mm-hmm. you've had those those experiences as well. So we have. And uh, I don't just think. A, a, go ahead. I was just going to say I don't think you have to believe that they're possible, but you have to be open to them to be able to experience them. You have to be just open, uh, but you yes. don't have to believe, and and then you know. Be surprised. Right, right. It, it it can happen. You know, the the connections are there, and mm-hmm. the you know Silver Oak Cellar. You know, it's still a family business, right? It's run by the sons of Justin's former business partner Ray Duncan. Mm-hmm. I guess they're still mm-hmm. running it, right? I read that on the website. Okay, yeah. So I don't want to make sure yep. I'm saying any uh, in, incorrect um, information. And you're now a partner mm-hmm. in Meyer Family Cellars, a winery run by your son and his wife. You know, wine must run through your your bloodstream. The veins. <laughs> yeah, through the veins, you know, through, through your family. Um, so th- does the wine business still excite you? Are you still involved in in the business? I enjoy I enjoy the wine business. Um, I'm not intimately. I'm involved in uh, Meyer Family Cellars. Matt and Karen make the wine and and run that. I what I spend most of my time doing is is uh, farming vineyard and being a regenerative investor. And in fact, uh, a, a herd of goats and sheep just arrived on my property earlier today, and they are going to be. Uh, Tending to the weeds that are on the vineyard, and more and more, uh, many vintners are are using more natural methods for uh, weed control instead of disking the the land and and uh, disturbing the soil. So, so I, I love that trend. Back to nature. Yeah. 
Baby goats? Yeah. Are there cute baby they, goats there? Oh, yes, there are. Yeah, <laughs> they're really cute. They are so cute. Maybe you could do some goat yoga. I understand that's a thing in, in some places. <laughs> <laughs> at the vineyard that that would be pretty cool so uh -huh. do you think it sounds like you know you're you still stay busy and i know you're involved in um some investment things and, and philanthropy and do you feel it's important to be of service and to give back is that an important piece for you you know that's what gets me up in the morning um after justin died and i was really um I was uh, clinically depressed for a while, and I just. But I looked at my children in my children's eyes, and I they were really were afraid for me to die. But then over time, and that's what kind of really kept me going. Over time, um, of course, that has to change. My children, my youngest is almost forty, um, and what really gets me up in the morning and fires me up is figuring out ways with with the talented social entrepreneurs to make the world, uh, make society, make the earth better um, through their innovations and supporting them. That's so amazing. It's been so fun to talk with you. This, this time's flown by. I could, yeah. I could talk wine with you more. <laughs> wine and food <laughs> and love. Yeah, we could definitely. But Bonnie Meyer, it's been so wonderful to chat with you about the book, Perfectly Paired. And uh, during the break, we were, we were talking about the book and turning it into a movie. And I said, Bonnie, maybe Glenn Close could play you in the movie. You thought maybe Meryl Streep. That would be that would be a great casting. <laughs> Hopefully we'll see that <laughs> on the big coming Either to one. a big screen near you. Perfectly paired. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bonnie Meyer, for joining me today on the show. Thank you, Diane. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Michelle Phillips, a celebrity makeup artist, beauty expert, self-confidence coach, and Hay House author. My podcast, Beauty and Beyond, is the place for women navigating the challenges of the aging process. Listen in for my professional advice, as well as my expert guests, as we share valuable tips, practical tools, and empowering resources to help you not only look amazing, but also live an amazing life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and available wherever you get your podcasts.